Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, Islanders. Well, the world is really going crazy at the moment. I hope you all stay as safe as you can. Now, this week, we have a case of axoracide, or the killing of one's wife. Now, we go to the suburb of Brookfield, about a 25-minute drive west of Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Now, I'll reference tonight the Alison Baden Clay Foundation, the Calgary Herald, the Daily Mail, the Brisbane Times, Court Records, QueenslandJudgments.com.au, battleofwills.com.au, ruleoflaw.com.au, the Queensland Times, news.com.au, and the Channel 9 Network. It's the 20th of April, 2012, and 43-year-old Alison Baden-Clay has gone missing. As I said, she lives at Brookfield. Alison was born on the 1st of July 1962 in Corinda, Queensland, a university graduate who spoke six languages. She was warm, talented and intelligent. Her passion was ballet and she lit up the stage when she danced. Now, When Alison was 10 years old, she toured the UK, including the Edinburgh Festival with the Australian Youth Ballet. She then went to Scandinavia on a Rotary Exchange program, then graduated from the University of Queensland. She then started working as a consultant at Flight Centre in Brisbane. She was very successful and became manager of the Ipswich Flight Centre branch. Now, Alison, she was also crowned Miss Brisbane in 1993 and was named Ipswich Young Businesswoman of the Year. Alison then returned to Brisbane to become Manager for Human Resources at Flight Centre, and then she was promoted to Global Human Resources Manager, responsible for more than 3,000 employees worldwide. Now about this time, Alison met Jared Baden-Clay, who was also working at Flight Centre as a travel consultant for the first 24-hour division and he was managing his own outlet. They hit it off and would eventually marry in 1997 and they had their honeymoon overseas which turned into a bit of a working holiday seeing as though they were working for Flight Centre. Then Flight Centre called them back to Australia with Alison taking the role of staff recruiter and trainer and Jared found work there as well. Now Jared... Jared Baden-Clay was born September the 9th, 1970, in Bournemouth, England. When he was about one year old, his family moved to Rhodesia, or Zimbabwe as it is known now. His family moved to Australia in 1980. Jared went to the Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education, or University of Southern Queensland, as it's now known, getting a Bachelor of Business. Jared then worked as an accountant in the audit division of KPMG, Pete Marwick, and then as a company accountant for designer workwear. From 94 to 97, he worked at Flight Centre, initially as a travel consultant for the first 24-hour division, 
and he was managing his own outlet, as I said. Later, he worked as an office and recruitment systems manager. Now, as we know, this is where Alison and Jared met. They got married in 97, honeymooned and worked overseas, then back to Australia, continuing their work for Flight Centre. In 2000, Jared was sacked from Flight Centre after the section he was working in was dissolved. He wasn't happy about this and tried to sue for damages. He then started working at Rain and Horn in Kentmore for about 10 months. In late 2003, Jared studied for his real estate license, which he obtained in early 2004. Alison would put her career on hold at this time to raise one, then two, and ultimately three lovely daughters. She started to suffer a little bit from depression, and that was linked to malaria tablets she'd taken while travelling. She sought medical advice and was fine on medication. Jared then started as Principal and Managing Director of Century 21 West Westside. Now, from what I can gather, he used his parents' money to set the place up, and they both worked with him at the start, but then they ultimately retired. Jared then brought in partners. Now, it was all going well at one time, but he had cooked the books a little bit when bringing on the other partners, and without his parents, things started going downhill. He remained there until 2012, and that's when we get into what this case is all about. Now, before I go any further, Jared Baden Clay was descended from Robert Baden Powell of the Scout Movement fame. Well, founder. Jared wouldn't miss an opportunity to tell you this when you met him. He used it all the time to make himself more important than he was and wanted to be the centre of attention at all times. He always had grand plans, but never seemed to reach his goals. He was confident, but quite a lot of people thought he was up himself, and even Alison's friends didn't like him. But they said, she was in love, so what do you do? Love is blind. In 2012, the Baden Clays, Jared, Alison, and their three kids, aged 5, 8, and 10, they lived at 593 Brookfield Road, Brookfield, Queensland. It was what real estates would call the worst house in the best street. Well, it was an affluent suburb at least, but the house they rented was nowhere near the best house in the area, but the rent was cheap. You see, Jared was having an affair, and he was also having financial issues with the real estate business especially after recent floods in the area. His partners wanted out of the business because they couldn't trust him and they gave him time to pay them off. So they just didn't need the money straight away, but they just about had it with him. Mm, Let's get out. You've got six months or so to pay us. Alison had been brought into the business as a cost-effective way to help out and she was doing quite well in her section. On the financial side of things, I won't go into every little detail, but Jared had been able to keep afloat by borrowing money from friends, deferred payments for the business, but it just wasn't enough. So this affair, I said Jared was having. In August 2008, Jared commenced an affair with Tony McHugh, one of his employees. Alison found out about the the affair about three years later in September 2011. 
Now, Tony McHugh said that Jared regularly expressed his intention of leaving his wife, but was concerned for her mental health and, in turn, the consequences for their daughter's welfare if he did leave her. Now, how many times have we heard this sort of story? When Alison found out about the affair, Jared called Tony McHugh into the office, told her it was over, and, oh, by the way, you can't work here anymore. You're sacked. Nice guy. She tried to contact Jared to talk it over, but she gave up when he didn't respond. Now, for years, Jared had strung Tony along, telling her he loved her, and one day he would leave Alison and they could be married. Now, don't think Tony was a homewrecker. She was married at the time, but her relationship had broken down. Jared had comforted her at the time, and that's 2008. And he told her that his relationship was on the rocks as well. So he was married, but to Tony, he was already ready to move on from Alison. Now, when Alison found out about the affair, she organised for counselling where they reached an agreement that Jared would show his commitment to her by not going out at night without her approval and by giving her the password for his phone so that she could check his text, emails and call history. In December 2011, only a couple of months after breaking the affair off, Jared contacted Tony McHugh and asked her to meet him. Now, when they met, he told her that he loved her and wanted to end his marriage. They then kept in contact by way of very brief phone calls and emails through an account under another name. They met again on another occasion before the beginning of April 2012. Now, here, Jared told Tony that he would be out of his marriage by the 1st of July 2012, but said that they shouldn't meet until that occurred. They remained in regular email and telephone contact and in an email of the 3rd of April 2012, he gave Tony a commitment to which he intended to stick and that he would be separated from Alison by the 1st of July. Now, given his history, Tony really didn't believe him at all. Now, he wrote another email to Tony on the 11th of April and he said how much he loved her. In fact, three times in that one email. Now, if you think this guy is a narcissistic creep, you're pretty much on the right track. So let's just have a little recap on this. Yep, he got busted for the affair he was having, and he had no qualms in sacking Tony to get her out of the office. A couple of months later, he's back sniffing around for a bit more, now that the initial heat from Allison has died down. He wants his family, beautiful wife, that outward look of success, but he still wants his grubby little affair on the side. And he treated Tony as just a side chick. He strung her along with lies year after year to maintain the affair. Now, yeah, Alison could have left Jared, but she was focused on her three daughters and wouldn't entertain a divorce. It could have been the constant gaslighting that she got from Jared, that she felt that even though it wasn't the best situation to be in, it could be fixed. And in counselling, Jared had promised to end the affair and do the right thing by his family. I mean, Jared, although being emotionally abusive, wasn't physically abusive. My, my thoughts is that Jared was just a fucking wanker. Now, just a total dickhead. 
Anyway, that's just my opinion. On the 19th of April 2012, Tony McHugh telephoned Jared and told him that she was going to a property management conference the following day. Now, Jared told her that Alison and another employee of the real estate agency would be attending the same conference. Tony was pissed off, saying that he should tell Alison about their relationship, that it was not fair to either of them that they should be in the same room together. She demanded to know his intentions. He said that he was thinking of selling the business after he left Alison, and he didn't respond to her request to see him. And now we're at the 20th of April 2012. Alison has a real estate conference to attend in the city, but she's not in the house when her kids get up to get ready for school. Instead, Jared gets them ready, and he has marks on the left side of his face, which his kids ask him about. He tells them that he cut himself shaving because he's rushing to get them ready for school, and one of the kids, Sarah, puts a Band-Aid on the cut. At 6.30am, Jared calls his father to tell him Alison had gone for a walk and she hadn't returned. Now his father and her and his sister drove over to the Brookfield Road house. At about 7am, Jared drove away from the house saying that he was going to look for his wife. At 7.15am, Jared made a triple zero call telling the operator that his wife had gone out for a walk and hadn't come back. A constable Ash arrived at 593 Brookfield Road at about 8am on the Friday morning. Jared told Ash that Alison had gone for a morning walk and had not yet returned, that he'd last seen her at about 10pm the night before and that she'd fallen asleep on the couch while watching the footy show. Now Ash noticed the marks on Jared's face. Now Jared again said that he'd cut himself shaving that morning because he was in a hurry trying to prepare the girls for school to get them dressed and breakfast. Now, Ash looked through the house. He didn't see any blood or sign of a struggle. In fact, one thing that he did see was the marital bed was made and the house seemed pretty spotless. Now, Ash looked for Alison's mobile phone and he didn't find it. Now, in the Craptiva... One of the two cars the family had, and that they'd only just bought a couple of months before, Ash found an empty box of medication prescribed for Allison, and I think it was Zolox. Now, several police would interview Jared that morning. They all saw the marks on the side of his face, and of course he told them it was a shaving cut. But they, pretty much they all straight away thought it looked like scratch marks from fingernails. Now, the property was quickly declared a crime scene. Now, the police on site at the Brookfield Road property felt that while Jared was answering questions, he was holding things back. Tony McHugh called Jared. Now, while they were on the phone, he told her that Alison had gone missing and they shouldn't be communicating. The next day, he told Tony the police would want to speak with her and she should tell the truth. Police would put out a public appeal for Alison, noting that she was wearing grey tracksuit pants and a dark top. Now, these scratch marks on Jared's face, well, anyone who saw them, including his family, friends, doctors or police, they didn't think it was razor cuts from shaving. They just did not look like that at all. 
At 8.30am on the 21st of April, Jared went to a local medical centre where he asked a Dr Bevan to look at the cuts on his face. He told Dr Bevan that at, at least three times while he was there that he'd been in a rush while shaving and had cut his face. At 4pm that day, he then saw a Dr Kumar at a different medical centre. He told Dr Kumar that he'd scratched himself with an old razor, causing these facial injuries. Then at 7.15pm on the 22nd of April, a forensic medical officer, Dr Griffiths, examined the injuries to Jared's face. Now, Dr Griffiths noted that the injuries resembled fingernail scratches. He estimated that the injuries were at least 48 hours old, if not older. Now, as we get through this case, these scratches will be quite important. Also, it would be found later that there were abrasions and scratches on Jared's chest. These resembled scratch marks and could have been caused by fingernail scratching. He also had a shoulder injury which looked like it had come about by the friction of clothes being rubbed hard against the skin. Now, police will also do a forensic search of the house and the two cars. The Craptiva, the, the, the Baden Clays had purchased just a couple of months before, had bloodstains on the driver's side rear wheel cowling in the third row of seats. Now, luminol was used to see if it was blood or it actually looked like a drink stain at the time. It would be found to not only be blood, but it was Allison's blood. However, it was not possible to say how old the blood stain was. Now, being a brand new car, it couldn't have been that old. Now, by the 23rd of April, Allison is still not found, and police set up a major incident room and at Inderipoli Police Station. Did I get Inderipoli right this time? I don't know. Anyway, Priscilla and Jeff Dickey, that's Allison's parents, they appeal to the public to help find their daughter. Allison's father, Jeff Dickey, said, We are overwhelmed by the support in trying to locate Allison. Please help us because there are three beautiful little girls of Allison's wanting to see their mother as soon as possible. Police told reporters that they were treating the disappearance as a missing persons case, not a criminal investigation. <laughs> well, yeah, right. I think they already at this stage knew the husband was involved. Now, on the 24th of April, Allison is still nowhere to be found and Jared finally makes a public statement. Now, I'll play this clip from Nine News and I'll play the full video version of this news clip from Channel Nine, but you have to go to my YouTube channel to watch that. So here we go. The husband of a woman who mysteriously disappeared from her Kenmore home last Thursday night has broken his silence to Nine News. The hunt for Alison Baden-Clay has intensified with police now searching industrial garbage bins for evidence. Coming out of his parents' home, the pain and strain of the last five days was clear to see across Jared Baden-Clay's face. I'm trying to look after my children at the moment. They've got three young girls and we, we really trust that the police are doing everything they can to find my wife and we just hope that she'll come home soon. Nine News understands Mr Baden-Clay has hired lawyers and has been in regular contact with detectives. I've spoken to the police about everything and I've had no contact from her at all. Alison disappeared last Thursday night and hasn't been seen or heard from since. Her mobile phone is also missing 
and her bank account has been untouched. Was she upset before she went away? No, and and the police, I've tried to help the police as much as I can and we all have and everything we've got, so okay. thank you, I'm sorry. Yeah, right, dodgy as fuck. But if you want to see how guilty he looks, check out my YouTube channel. I'll have the full clip there. He definitely does sound guilty. I mean, his voice is so off. It's like he's pretending that he's trying to cry or something. I mean, there's absolutely no Oscar for that performance. And apparently, this is the only media interview he gives. I think Channel 9 just doorstopped him and he came out of the house. Now, I don't think it's a spoiler for the rest of the case because I think you all know where this case is heading. But this grieving husband bullshit reminds me a little bit of Chris Watts. In the video, you can see his body language as well. And so, honestly, go and have a look and let me know in the comments what you think, guilty or not, just from that interview. Now, on the 25th, detectives raid the office of Jared's real estate agency and gather more evidence from his house. Alison is still nowhere to be found, and there is a prayer vigil at the local church for her. On the 27th, police make a mannequin outside of the family home wearing what is believed to be the clothing similar to what Alison was wearing when she went missing. That was the grey tracky dacks and the black top. Now, really, to tell you the truth, I think the cops put it there to freak Jared out a little bit, make him squirming and feel a bit un- uncomfortable. Other than the initial search of his car in, in his car the morning Allison went missing, and I reckon that was just a drive around the block, Jared has not searched for his wife since. Now, that's a little bit strange, wouldn't you think? Now, search crews widen the area that they're looking for Allison. They start looking in industrial dumpsters. On the 28th of April, a week since Alison went missing, Jared issues a statement to the media. He thanks the public for their support, saying his priority is the welfare of his wife and their three daughters. On the 30th of April, a canoeist discovers a woman's body on a creek bank under the Colo Bridge crossing at Anstead. That's about 14 kilometres from the family home. The body is wearing what Alison was thought to have worn the morning she went missing. The body is on a muddy bank and quite decomposed. On the 1st of May, the body is formally identified as that of Alison Baden-Clay. Her family are devastated and the police are now treating it as a homicide. The police say, at this stage we're looking at an unlawful homicide investigation. We've been looking at that for some time now. We believe it's reached that level some time ago. Yep, you know, I think they were pretty suspicious of Jared and probably from day one they thought he'd killed her. Anyway, Jared says he's devastated by the loss of his wife. In a statement released by his lawyer, Jared says his primary concern now is the care of his three daughters and he just wants to provide his children with some stability and normality given the tragic news and despite the unrelenting media barrage. An autopsy is performed and Dr Mill, he couldn't determine the cause of death because of the effects of this decomposition, but certain observations he made were suggestive of blunt force trauma. 
Now, the autopsy report identified possible causes of death which could not be excluded. Now, these included smothering and strangulation. Dr. Milne could put these no higher than possibilities because any soft tissue injuries that may have been sustained to the face or neck would have been destroyed or obscured by the decomposition and other post-mortem changes. Now, about a week or so later, police set up roadblocks in the area to try and find out more information and probably to try and see if anyone saw Alison walking on the morning she went missing. Now, yeah, I, I think what they're trying to do here is to prove that Alison didn't go walking that morning, especially 14 kilometres walking. Because Alison was suffering from depression or at least taking medication for it, what they're trying to do is rule out any suggestion of suicide. Because I think they they know Jared has done this, but they've got to make sure they rule out all this other stuff and then they can focus on him. Alison had her funeral service on the 11th of May at St Paul's Anglican Church at Ipswich. Jared was there acting all devastated, but he failed to address the mourners. Now, don't you think that's a bit weird? You're the husband and you don't make some sort of speech or anything? Let's go on. On June the 13th, Jared is interviewed at Inderipoli Police Station for several hours and would then be charged with murder and interfering with a corpse. He says he's innocent and will defend the charges, but he's denied bail as he is a flight risk. So, it's now been about two months since Alison went missing. Her friends, Alison's friends, knew something was wrong with Jared from day one when she met him. Now, they all knew he had something to do with it. But how would you be, hey, comforting this prick for those couple of months to find out he's now charged with a murder? So you're looking at his family, some friends, the pastor, all these people are all comforting him and he's, oh, yeah, my wife's gone missing and she's murdered. And it looks like he did it. Anyway, I know at this stage he is innocent until proven guilty and he has denied he killed her. But if you were a close family member, parents or sibling, and you're standing by him, what must be going through your mind at this stage? And I'm sure there was a measure of doubt that he was innocent at all. So at the trial, the prosecution presented a motive and a lot of circumstantial evidence, as, as well as normal evidence, actual evidence. The motive to kill his wife was that he was in financial troubles. Not only did he owe a lot of money, but Allison had two life insurance policies amounting to $800,000. The other motive was that he had promised his lover, Tony McHugh, that he would be out of his marriage by the 1st of July 2012. But you don't need to prove motive to prove murder, but they are both very strong reasons why you would want to kill your wife. Now, I'll go through some of the evidence was pre- that was presented at the trial. Now, first, the scratch marks on his face. Now, there was so much legal arguing over this point and several expert witnesses on how they came to be. But basically, most of the doctors saw that the injuries, well, they thought they were probably scratch marks and not made by a razor cut. Still, they couldn't be 100% sure but it was the most likely cause. Same with the scratches on his chest. 
There were also the marks on his shoulder that looked like they'd been made from fabric rubbed hard against his skin. Sort of like a carpet burn. Probably from Alison grabbing his shirt while trying to defend herself. Now there was the fact police could detect Jared had plugged his mobile phone into its charger at 1.38am. Now this is when he claimed to be in a heavy sleep at the time. So how do you plug your phone in if you're asleep? Jarrett lived a double life. For three years, he deceived and has confidence in his capacity to deceive. So basically what they were trying to say, he is a liar and he thinks he's pretty good at lying and pulling the wool over other people's eyes. He's pretty narcissistic. I think he thinks he's got more brains. He's smarter than anyone else. Now, Alison was found 14 kilometres from her house and that's a long walk and apparently she was a reluctant exerciser. No one saw her along the route and there was no suggestion that she was taken there by someone other than her husband. Now, she had plans to meet a colleague at the conference at 8am in the morning and she'd also organised to drop off ballerina dresses that she'd borrowed from a friend months before. Now, she was going to drop those off to her after the conference. Now, where her body was found was well known to Jared, and there was plenty of room to park a car there at night. It was in the dark as there's no street lights. Now, Jared had sold properties there, so he pretty much knew the area. There was also no evidence that she was drug affected on that morning, and she didn't fall from the bridge intentionally or otherwise, as she would have sustained fractures. It was more likely she was rolled or pushed from the ledge above from where she was found. Now, without going into too much detail of the types of flora found on and in her body, basically what was found was also found at her home, but none of it was found at the site where her body was located or along the route she would have had to take. So what this means is she's probably been dragged outside her house to the car She's got leaves and sticks and shit in her hair and on her body. And then she's been transported in the back of the car straight to this other location where she's been dumped. So you'd think that if she's going to get leaves in her hair or any sticks or whatever stuck to her body, these types of flora would be found along the route and at that location. But no, it's only at her home. Now, also, this analysis ruled out that she had drowned in the water. The bruise to Alison's chest and her chipped tooth were consistent with a struggle. Now, there was no suggestion from staff at the business that they saw signs of depression in Alison. Alison also, she had three school-aged children and was quite involved in their lives. She was also engaged in building the business and also making plans for its future. She was excited about going to the real estate conference on the Friday. So all these things show that she wasn't going to commit suicide. Now, when police first inspected the Craptiva, the back row of seats were down and toys in a box were positioned there. And Alison's blood was hidden from view until the row of seats was folded up. Now, probably why the box of toys was put there was put there by Jared, hoping the police wouldn't look and pull that chair up. But that's just my little view, my opinion. There had been no injury to Alison before the 19th of April to account for the blood in the car. So therefore, there was an injury to Alison on the night 
that caused her to bleed. Then there was the real prospect of his affair with Tony McHugh being exposed to his wife at the conference the next day and her being unwilling to forgive him a second time. Jared would ultimately be found guilty. Now the judge summed up the case. I'll read out a little bit of it. It's been edited for flow as I usually do. Now he said, The killing was not premeditated, but it was violent and that Jared was under considerable stress. His financial and domestic circumstances were in bad shape. He resumed his affair with Tony McHugh. He led her to believe he was going to leave Alison and to be with her. Now, the afternoon before the murder, he told Tony that Alison would be at the conference she was to attend in Brisbane the next day. Now, he knew that if the two women were to meet, the consequences would have been absolutely dramatic. A relationship counsellor had devised a plan to get the marriage back on track. Now, it allowed for Alison to express her feelings about the affair in a brief session every second day, and Jared had reluctantly agreed to that. The first session happened the night before Alison died, and it had turned into an interrogation. Alison remained tormented by the affair, pressing him for details. On the night she died, Alison again questioned him about the affair and all the pressures proved too much. The prosecution suggested that Jared smothered Alison and that that looks likely. But whatever the mechanism, his his violent attack caused her death. Her fingernails scratched his face, the act of a desperate woman struggling for her life. He then continued his shameful conduct after murdering Alison, showing a profound absence of remorse. He then took her body to Colo Creek. There he disposed of Alison in an undignified way, dumping her over a ledge to leave her lying in mud, exposed to the elements, insects and wildlife. He then put in place and persisted in a deception plan. He used a razor to cut himself near where she'd scratched him, trying to disguise the injury she had inflicted in defending herself. He then drove around the streets of Brookfield pretending to look for her. He then insinuated that mental illness may have led to a drug overdose or suicide and besmirching Alison's memory in a way that is thoroughly reprehensible. The judge said that Jared had no criminal history, but he was definitely not good of character, and that he took a devoted, loving mother from her three girls, blighting their lives. So on the 15th of July 2014, Jared Baden-Clay was found guilty of murdering his wife, Alison, and he was given a life sentence with a non-parole period of only 15 years. Now, the charge of interfering with a corpse, well, that was dropped. Now, in 2015, Jared appealed his conviction of murder and it was downgraded to manslaughter. Now, this caused an an uproach, an uprage, a rage amongst the pro and protests amongst the community. And in 2016, the Queensland Director of Public Prosecutions decided to appeal against the downgrade And thank God, the High Court of Australia restored the original trial murder conviction. Now, without going into all the legal jargon of why the murder conviction was reinstated, basically, Jared said that he had no part in the death of Alison. Now, if he had come clean and said they'd had a fight and she bumped her head or whatever that caused her death, 
Well, that could have been seen as not intentional and a manslaughter finding could have been made. So, this narcissistic lying wanker fucked himself up. He was just a nobody, a failure, a disgrace to his family. His actions left three young girls without parents, especially their loving mum. And all for what? Life in prison? Oh, and by the way, he can't get any of Alison's estate. There is the Alison Baden Clay Foundation that has been set up in her honour. The foundation aims to build a national community that acknowledges the prevalence of domestic and family violence and seeks to create an Australia that is committed to eliminating and taking concrete action to stop domestic and family violence. Go to alisonbadenclayfoundation.org.au and check it out. Well, Islanders, another precious life taken away in a narcissistic rage. So that's the end of another episode. And now we go to the Patreon as usual. Patreon, thanks to all my past, present and new Patreons. Your financial support really does make a difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. Thank you all so much. It's always appreciated any of your pledges. Now this week, uh, Lisa Mackey upped her pledge. Thank you very much, Lisa. And to get on my Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash true crime island. This week, I'll be messaging everyone who has a reward coming. So just check your spam box if you don't get an email in the next few days. Now, if you don't like the monthly thing, you can also just do a donation via PayPal. Now, the PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Please remember, support yourself before you support the island, okay? Now, I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble. Go to Redbubble and search for True Crime Island. There are links on my YouTube channel for Redbubble, Threadless and all this sort of stuff. So just search for True Crime Island and feel free to like, subscribe and comment. Hit the little bell for notifications. Now, I usually release the YouTube version the day after the audio version. Now, you can also support the show just by rating and reviewing. Also, it's so good when people share. So share it with your friends and family. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. You can download whatever you want there or stream the audio podcast from there. Now, again, please feel free to check out the YouTube channel and subscribe. I think there will be a giveaway at 1,000 subs. So with a little bit more motivation to have a look. If you want to contact me, the best way, honestly, is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. It always gets a bit messy with Twitter messages, uh, Facebook messages. They don't always go in the right spot, and I, I can't always see them. Okay, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Night. Boom, bugalunga. Boom, bugalunga.